Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to see you here this morning. My name's Marshall. Uh, if I haven't met you before, my name is still Marshall. If I have met you, pretty much everyone agrees that love is important and that we all need it. The Beatles, of course, famously uh, wrote a song about it in 1967, All You Need Is Love. But then we all know that pretty much every second pop song um, is about love, isn't it? Why is love so important? Well, there are lots of different answers floating around. Um, One answer is that we've evolved to value love because it's vital to our continuation as a species. Um, Here's a quote from a website um, that aims to help people understand science. It says, From the perspective of evolution, love may exist as a motivator with an adaptive benefit. Love can encourage people to procreate, contributing to the perpetuation of the human species. Now, I don't know what your thought about evolution is, whether you think that may or may not be true. But either way, to my mind, that's not exactly a satisfying explanation of love. It's kind of soulless, isn't it? Well, another possibility explaining for us um, uh, possibility explaining why, why we value love is that our bodies give off happy hormones. Um, you've probably heard of that. Um, apparently, I'm, I'm not a scientist, but I'm told that um, when we experience especially romantic attraction, romantic love, uh, we give off hormones like dopamine uh, and other hormones Uh, with sex and romantic connection with others. Here's a little fun fact I found on the internet. Apparently there's something called androstenone, uh, which is found in pigs. So when when a boar um, is in the mood for a bit of love, to attract the female pigs, they give off this androstenone. Apparently that same hormone is found in the human armpit. Little fun fact. Anyway, so maybe love is just a matter of chemicals, uh, chemical response, because it makes us feel good. But maybe that's not the whole picture. Maybe there's more to love than that. Certainly it's true that romantic love makes us feel good and there are all sorts of psychological reasons we could give why we chase after love. But fuzzy feelings for a boy or a girl aren't all there is to love, is it? When the Bible talks about love, it nearly always means something bigger than that, something different. A commitment to the good of someone else that goes way beyond your girlfriend or your boyfriend or your spouse. Very often that that's love that's costly, that's difficult, that's sacrificial. It's love that can't be explained by hormones or evolutionary benefit for the species. And that's the sort of love that we just heard read to us in Hebrews chapter 13. Love for the stranger and for the prisoner. It also does include love for a husband and wife, but none of these loves are based on hormones or even emotions primarily. 
they are expressions of our faith in God. And the love that we're told to love with is a reflection of the way that God loves us. We love the people he loves. We love the way that he loves. Hebrews 13 is what the life of faith looks like. It's about love. Loving the way God loves. There are three ways the author tells us to do that, which we'll look at. One, to love the stranger. Two, to honour marriage. And three, to love God and not money. And then our last two points, we to do that by following our leaders. And then our last point is that our motivation is to look to the new city. So that's where we're going today. Why don't you pray with us as we start? Father God, we thank you for the book of Hebrews and as we come to this last chapter. We thank you for the way it challenges us and encourages us to live out our faith uh, in real practical ways, in the way that we love you and the way that we love other people. We pray that you would speak to us today through your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in this chapter, the author is continuing to tell us, to tell his readers how to live by faith. Remember, book of Hebrews, the first 12 chapters, 11 chapters rather, uh, are talking about um, faith in Jesus. And then chapter 11, the heroes of the faith. And then chapters 12 and 13, he begins to explain what that faith looks like in real life. And he continues on with that in our last chapter, in chapter 13. The life of faith, he says, is a life of love, to love the way that God loves. So our first point is uh, keep on loving one another as... Sorry, um, there's meant to be another. Sorry about that. I just um, have a verse that wasn't on PowerPoint. Verse 1, if you have your Bibles, he says, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. That's kind of a heading summary, a summary statement for uh, all that follows on love. The fact that the author uses the word brothers and sisters shows that he's probably talking about fellow believers. The context for what he's writing in is that they were living in a dangerous world for believers. There was persecution by the Roman authorities. Christians may have often needed help. Uh, People were being thrown in jail. They were in need of protection, in need of practical help and shelter, etc. So the author tells us to love in three ways. Firstly, to love the stranger. Verse 2, he says, do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. When we think about hospitality, we often think of having people in our home, and it's usually people that we know, isn't it? Might be friends, might be neighbours, it could be bigger than that, it could be your community group. that you have around for a meal. It's usually the idea of welcoming those people we, uh, we know. 
But the writer is talking about a much broader idea of hospitality. It means welcoming, not just having people in your home. Of course it can include that, but it's broader than that. It's providing for people's needs, providing them with help and protection. And secondly, it's specifically talking about people we don't know, the stranger, the outsider. You see, the word, um, we don't get it in the English, but in the original Greek, the word for hospitality um, is one, la- it's one word that literally means love for outsider. It's the word Philadelphia, right? the, 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 the city in America is named after, and it means love for outsider. The fact that it's welcoming someone you don't know is shown by the little comment there uh, at the end of verse 2 that some people have welcomed angels without realising it. You don't realise it because you don't know these people who you're welcoming. They're strangers. Now the writer of Hebrews is probably talking about Christians who would come from somewhere else who needed food and lodging. Um, in their world at the time, often there would be travelling evangelists or missionaries uh, who would travel from town to town, city to city, and they needed putting up. So uh, you would practice hospitality by having them in, in your home. Or they could also be refugees, in a sense, um, fleeing persecution. This was a time of persecution increasing persecution by the Roman authorities and there was a need to protect Christians sometimes who would have to flee uh, from their home to another place. Now, obviously we're in a very different world, aren't we, in Sydney in 2023. We can thank God that we don't have persecution, not real persecution, And we also don't have these itinerant preachers, do we, going from place to place in need of uh, being put up. I mean, very rarely we might have someone come in who who stays at someone's house, but but that's not a normal part of the culture. But I want to think about, I want us to think about how we might apply that idea of welcoming the stranger. It's important to do that because this is something that isn't just a random verse, a one-off verse here in Hebrews 13. It's a core part of the law that God gave to Moses in the Old Testament and it's just as core to Jesus' ethical teaching in the New Testament. It's the outworking of how we are to love God and Aaron uh, helpfully introduced us to that idea in, the intro, in his introduction. Welcoming, hospitality for the stranger, it's central to God's heart. Now, firstly, I said that the writer is mainly talking about loving fellow Christians in, in this context. And that's probably the first concern with loving the stranger. But it's not confined to just Christians. 
the whole thing about loving someone you don't know is that you don't, don't always know their backgrounds. You don't know necessarily whether they're a believer or not. In the book of Deuteronomy, a core part of the way that the people of God were to worship God in the land they were about to enter, it's given just before they went into the land of Canaan, they were to celebrate God's presence and God's provision with food and celebration and regular festivals that was to include the slave and the outsider and the foreigner that lived among them. Everyone was to be treated the same. There was to be no discrimination. Everyone was welcomed. In the parable of the Good Samaritan that Jesus uh, uh, talks about in Luke's Gospel, Jesus makes it clear that it's our responsibility to provide hospitality, to look after uh, someone in need, to everyone that we find in need. The Samaritan didn't stop and ask the man if he believed in the same God as the, as, the, as the man who was robbed. So yes, our first priority is to uh, the people of God, brothers and sisters in Christ. But that doesn't mean that we don't love those, everybody in need, Christian or non-Christian. Verse 3, continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison and those who are mistreated if you yourselves were suffering. Not just hospitality but particularly to those in need. Now, we could actually go and visit prisoners. That, that would be a great ministry and many Christians are involved specifically in that ministry. But we can also apply the principle of loving those who are mistreated, victims of injustice, those who are suffering because they are pushed to the margins outside the normal support networks and the needy. We, could, we can apply that in any number of ways. Something I wanted to share with you is that something I believe God has put on my heart for a while now on me personally, for my personal life and for us as a church, is to be doing more in this area of loving the stranger, loving those in need, loving and serving those on the outside. Quite honestly, we don't do very much here at SWEC. Now, please, please, I'm not, this isn't a guilt um, dump at all. Um, it's just a reflection of reality uh, because honestly it's not easy to work out what to do. Uh, we live in uh, a suburb, Kingsgrove, where people living on the streets, there may be people uh, living on the streets but they're, they're not obvious, at least they're not obvious to me. It's not obvious to work out what the needs are uh, in our area and if we do see needs, it's often not a simple matter working out how to respond to that. Here's what I'm suggesting as an action point to this passage. I would really like us to pray. To pray as individuals and to pray as a church 
about how we can show hospitality in a meaningful, real way to strangers in need around us. I don't want this to be a cop-out. I don't want this to be um, a way of saying that actually we don't do anything at all. But praying as a first step is a recognition that we need to, for God to work in us and to give us a desire and the ability to love as he wants us to love. Here's just one thought about an area to pray about. Um, in CGs this week, um, uh, as Aaron mentioned, we did a study on refugees, which I thought was really appropriate. It was actually coincidental. Uh, I, I didn't plan this, um, but I think it's a God moment. Uh, it's appropriate as we look at this study. Uh, I did it because it, we're coming up to Refugee Week, uh, as uh, Jess mentioned in our prayer. Refugees tick all the boxes that the writer to Hebrews is talking about in these verses. They are strangers in great need of being shown welcome and hospitality. Now, there are churches and ministries reaching out to refugees, and some of them are in our area, so it would make sense for us to work out what's going on and perhaps uh, do something in conjunction with them. That's something I'd love us to pray about and think about possible involvement for sweat. Okay, let's move on. As well as loving the stranger, we're also to love those closest to us, especially your husband and wife if you're married. Verse 4. Marriage should be honoured by all and the marriage bed kept pure for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. So for the married person, honour your marriage by being faithful to your spouse. And if you're not married, you need to honour marriage. Most obviously that means that if you're not married, you don't go and sleep with someone who is married. But maybe a little bit less obviously, it also means that we, you don't sleep around with anyone outside of a marriage relationship. If you're single, you don't sleep with your boyfriend or girlfriend. Now you may think, well, why not? Maybe you have a girlfriend and boyfriend who you really love, genuinely love. Why should God care about who you have sex with, as long as you're not cheating or, or hurting anyone's uh, marriage. Um, but it's clear from this passage that God does care about who you sleep with. In verse 4, God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. That means anyone who has sex outside of marriage. Now, friends, that's not a fashionable message these days, is it? If we were to go around town quoting that verse, we'd likely get laughed at, at least, or probably abused. But here's why God cares so much about sex only being something we enjoy in marriage. Marriage between a man and a woman is a reflection of Jesus' love for
for the church. It's a relationship of faithful, unbreakable commitment. Marriage is a beautiful picture of sacrificial love and submission, of the closest emotional and physical connection of relationship that it's possible to have. And sex is a wonderful gift of God that helps a husband and a wife to connect in those ways. But when we use sex as something that's separated from marriage, we are making an intimate connection with someone that's meant to be inseparable. We're meant to become one flesh. But if you sleep with your boyfriend or girlfriend and then you split up, you are ripping yourself and your partner in two in a spiritual sense. And that leaves you both with emotional and sexual scars that will stay with you for the rest of your life. And so God isn't being a killjoy in saying that sex outside of marriage is wrong. He's trying to protect us. Loving as God loves means that we reflect his faithfulness and commitment with our bodies choosing to give ourselves to one person in marriage. So we're given two positive ways to love in in this passage, to love the outsider with compassion and to love the insider, those that we are actually closest to in marriage with commitment and faithfulness. And then we are told, the author changes tack a bit, and we're told what not to love. We are not to love money. Verse 5, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. At first sight, this might seem a strange thing to follow on in talking about how to love. But if you look a bit more closely, we can see that it actually fits in with what the author has been talking about. All these different aspects of love are the way that we live out our faith. This is what the life of faith looks like. Loving the stranger, loving in marriage are both ways that we look outwards. We are to be faithful to others as God is faithful to us. Then we are not to love money. And the very next verse tells us why. Because God has said, sorry, second half of verse 5, God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. It's saying that God is faithful to us. Continuing this theme of faithfulness. God is faithful to us. Show that faithfulness to him in the way that you treat money. The author isn't picking money as a random thing that's bad for us. Our litmus, sorry, our attitude to money is a litmus test for where our heart is. So imagine I'm someone who comes to church each week. On the outside, I'm being, I'm living a good Christian life. I'm part of a community group. I'm involved with the life of the church. I look like someone who's following Jesus. But what you can't see in my heart is that I don't really trust Jesus for my future. I don't really believe that I need need him. 
And if I'm not trusting in Jesus, I've got to replace him with something else. Everyone trusts and hopes in, some, in, in something. And if it's not Jesus, it's probably going to be money or what money can represent, what money can buy. Because if God isn't what I look for my security and my future for, then it has to be something in this world. And that is represented by money. So if you are trusting in money, you are loving money and not God. Jesus said you can't love both God and money. It's impossible. But what the life of faith looks like is having confidence that God will be faithful. That he will never leave you or forsake you, as it says. That your future and security is bound up with him. That's the antidote to the love of money. Well, the writer then uh, moves on um, from talking about love to another aspect of the life of faith, and that is the importance of listening to your leaders. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time in this section, but I want to highlight two crucial reasons why we need good leaders. The writer tells us that our leaders are our role models. The life of faith is always a community project. There's no room in the Christian life for lone rangers who think that they can go it themselves when it comes to following Jesus. And the first reason why we need good role models is that they show us the truth in their lives. Have a look at verse 7. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. You see, it's not enough just to know the truth. We need, to sh- we need people in our lives to show us how to live the truth. So, when you become a Christian, you don't know how to pray, right? You need someone to show you how to pray. You don't know how to read the Bible. You need someone to show you how to read the Bible in community groups, here on Sundays in church, um, one-on-one if if um, if you're meeting one-on-one with someone. How do we know how to persevere in our Christian faith week by week? How do we know how to deal with doubts? How do we know how to deal with suffering when it comes along? We observe those more mature, our leaders, those with more life experience. And we also need people to remind us that the truth of the gospel is real. Because we all go through times of discouragement. Our faith may seem foolish to us or impotent, unreal compared with the the real things, the real problems that we face in the real world. During those times, we need others to show us that loving in a countercultural way is not a waste of time. That hoping in Jesus isn't useless. 
It's during those times that the gospel makes most sense when we see it lived out in the lives of others because we're just not able to see it ourselves. As we look at those we respect and look up to, it helps us to see beyond our own short-sightedness and inability to see reality. Secondly, follow your leaders because they remind us of the truth. Verse 9. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those who do so. The author, if you remember through Hebrews, if you've been here with us, has been banging away at this idea the whole way through the book. Stick to grace as it is found in the gospel of Jesus. Don't go back to the law of the Old Testament and the sacrificial system. The passage that follows in in verses 10 to 13, we won't look at in detail. Uh, It's a little bit of a complicated passage that basically is saying to leave the old tabernacle and the temple behind and follow Jesus outside the camp. That means uh, when the sacrifices were made and you just had a a burnt blob of of, um, charcoal, you took it outside the camp, uh, meaning it was done at service, it was useless, it had no role uh, in the tabernacle, in God's temple. It's a... It's a complicated way of saying trust in Jesus and not the law. Now we may not be in danger of rushing off to the temple uh, or the tabernacle as the, uh, the, the readers of, of Hebrews may have been. But we are tempted to turn away from the gospel of grace and trust in ourselves rather than God. Because that's, what, that's our default position as human beings, isn't it? To earn our way in life, to get what we deserve, to earn our wages. It's the way the world goes round, and it's our default setting. But the Gospel of Jesus tells us that we save by faith. It tells us that we totally, 100%, through what Jesus did, are we saved. And that we totally, 100%, reliant on Him and not our own efforts. Not only to be saved, but every aspect of the human, of the Christian life. We are totally, 100%, reliant on Him to love Him, to follow Him. The gospel flies in the face of everything we've ever learnt about life. And so we need to be constantly reminded to live by grace, to look to Jesus, to rely on him and not ourselves. And we need our leaders to faithfully, constantly 
keep coming back to that truth. Final point. What drives us forward in our faith? The prize at the finish line is in verse 14. The author says that the reason we keep going, the reason we bear the same disgrace that Jesus did when he died on the cross, is what is to come. What we look forward to. Verse 14. For here we do not have an enduring city, talking about life here on earth, but we are looking for the city that is to come. We saw this before, if you remember, back in Hebrews 11. It's talking about the new creation, which if you're a believer in Jesus, you will share in when you die, after Jesus returns. When God, the book of Revelation, the end of the book of Revelation talks about that. When God makes everything new, this new Jerusalem that the writer is talking about, this new city will come down from heaven. Everything will be restored to the way it's meant to be. And at the heart of that will be God's presence. Have a look with me quickly at Revelation 21 verse 3. It's there on the screen. God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and will be their God. And just look at what that will be like. Verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Now we could talk about uh, how that should motivate us to keep going in our faith so much more than we have time for today. We could do a whole sermon series on it. But I just want to leave you with one way that this helps us. The reality of this new creation shows us that loving faithfully the way that God loves having compassion for the stranger, faithfulness in marriage. They're not just ways we can help others and improve the world, though of course they are that and they should be that. But more than that, they are the very heartbeat of God. They are the eternal building blocks, not only of this creation, but the new creation, the new Jerusalem that we just looked at. That will go on forever. For, to finish off, let me show you two verses from the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament that are looking forward to this new creation. Isaiah lost it. Oh, there it is. Isaiah 54, verse 5. Your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. For a brief moment I abandoned you, but with deep compassion I will bring you back. In a surge of anger I hid my face from you in a moment, but with eternal kindness I will have compassion on you, says the Lord 
your Redeemer. Isaiah is giving his people a word of comfort. He's a prophet in the Old Testament and he's looking forward to the new creation. His people at the time are in captivity in Babylon, but he's giving them a, a word of hope. Your maker is your husband. The marriage between Christ and the church is the high point of God's plan to save the world. Everlasting kindness and compassion is shown to us who are once strangers and foreigners to God. That's the deepest reality, friends, behind our universe. And when we reflect that in our relationships, in our compassion, in our faithfulness, we're not just keeping a random set of moral rules. We're proclaiming the truth of the gospel of Jesus in, uh, as being the final word, the beautiful word that is behind all of reality. Let's pray. Thank you so much, Lord, that you are the Redeemer, the God of the whole earth, and that the greater reality uh, that goes uh, far beyond the suffering the, 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 of this present world is your everlasting kindness and your compassion. We pray that you would help us to reflect that in our love for the stranger, reflect that in our marriages and our, our, um, our attitude towards relationships. We pray that we would reflect that in our attitude to money, showing that our hope is in you and not in the things of this world. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.